0: The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures, stamping, problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute.
1: The Hub is a space celebrating 10 years
0: created by Carl Tsipras the,
1: Start Change the Hub is about impact. 90%. The Hub is for everyone.
2: You're all very welcome to this week's seminar, the Center of Early Modern History here at Trinity. And it's our great privilege to host our final seminar of the term and a great privilege to introduce our final speaker, who's probably our most distinguished speaker this term, Professor Jane Olmeyer, Erasmus Smith, Professor of History here at Trinity, who will be speaking um, on a current research on Ireland and empire in the early modern period. And her title is Ireland Empire and the Early Modern World. Which in some ways is a preview of her James Ford lectures to be given in Oxford in 2021, but she'll also be talking um, in the second half of her talk today about some ongoing work here in Trinity that we're doing in trying to think about Trinity's relationship with empire and colonialism in the, in the distant and more recent past. And Professor Olmeyer, I think, will be known, very well known to everybody as an expert on 17th century Ireland and on Ireland and Empire. Um, best known perhaps for her work on the 1641 depositions as PI of that extraordinary project, but also um, for her wonderful book, Making Ireland English on the 17th century aristocracy, and the current focus of her work really for the last number of publications has been on Ireland and Empire, a really wonderful article in past and present on Ireland and India, and this was looking eastwards and not just westwards as so much of Irish imperial history has done. So I'm going to hand over to Jane to talk to us about Ireland, empire and the early modern world.
1: Thank you very much, Patrick, for the kind invitation um, and that lovely introduction. Um, my, there are six Ford lectures, so rather than condense them into 50 minutes, uh, I'd like to give you a brief overview of some of the key themes, uh, the ones that run across uh, uh, the, the six. And then, as you've just said, uh, bring it together in a discussion of Trinity Empire in the early uh, modern world. But let me say a word about the Fords. And Patrick, if you're going to help me with the slides, first slide, please. Um, first and foremost, it's a true honour for me to be invited to deliver the annual James uh, Ford Lectures in British And Irish history, which are going ahead as planned in January 2021, but in a hybrid way. So there'll be a socially distanced audience in Oxford, plus a live stream, which is a first for the Fords, but it means that anyone anywhere can tune into them. So hopefully some of you joining today will be able to tune in again in January and February. Uh, the dates are on the uh, slide. I think it's they're happening at five o'clock on a Friday afternoon. I'm not sure that's the best time to get an audience, but anyway, um, uh, details will be circulated in the new year. The Fords began in 1896 with an inaugural lecture by S.R. Gardner, who is such a giant for any of us who work in the mid-17th century. And the list of previous Ford lecturers reads like a who's who of British and Irish history and includes many whose work I really admire. I'll be the 11th woman to deliver them. Now, Ireland is not a new topic for the Fords. Last year, Margot Finn gave a fabulous set of lectures on family and empire, uh, kinship and British colonialism in the East India Company era. And then back in 1998, the Fords uh, delivered by the late Rhys Davies were published under the title, The First English Empire, Power and Identities in the British Isles, 1093 to uh, 1343. Three distinguished Irish historians, uh, Marianne Elliott, Roy Foster and FSL Lyons have also given the Fords. Marianne and Roy were based in English universities when they did so. So the only other person uh, from an institution in the Republic of Ireland uh, to deliver the Fords was Lee Lyons back in 1978 when he was the Provost of Trinity College Dublin. And obviously I have ambitions in that regard myself. Uh, The prospect, next slide please, of giving the forwards is at the best of times, seriously scary. Um, I will be in Oxford as a fellow of All Souls College from the middle of January in what will be my first encounter with post-Brexit Britain. Um, I think it will be fascinating to talk about empire in Oxford, the epicenter of the 19th century British Empire in an auditorium within spitting distance of the statue of Cecil Roads, which I believe is still in place despite the repeated calls since 2015 for roads to fall. All Souls College has been in the news as well. Christopher Codrington, who was a fellow, um, amassed a fortune through his sugar plantations in the West Indies. And on his death in 1710, Codrington bequeathed to the library, uh, sorry, to the college, his library, which was worth £6,000 then, along with £10,000. So this is the equivalent of millions and millions of euros in modern money. Um, The All Souls Codrington Library holds his books and is named in his honour, something that That has led to heated uh, debate and protest. Uh, In response to this, All Souls has donated £100,000 to Codrington College in Barbados and set aside £6 million to endow three graduate studentships at Oxford for students uh, from the Caribbean. The library completed in 1751 is about to be renamed. However, the imposing statue of Codrington, which you can see here, will not be removed. Instead, a large plaque will be placed at the entrance, which will read, which I think already does read, quote, in memory of these who worked in slavery uh, on the Codrington plantations in the West Indies. The decision not to remove the statue is the source of ongoing contention, with a student commentator arguing, quote, that no plaque could sanitize the harm of continuing to elevate this slave owner. No plaque could do justice to the thousands of enslaved people whose forced labor generated the wealth on which All Souls Library stands. Empire and early modernity are clearly very much alive in Oxford. So it'll be fascinating to see how discussions of Ireland, empire and the early modern world are received. Next slide, please. The illustration depicts Hibernia as both shepherdess and huntress, with bees, the symbol of industry and colonisation, circling her head, and highly prized Irish wolfhounds at her side. This and the accompanying contrasts between the wild forests and the cultivated arable and pastoral lands represents many of the themes that are explored in my lectures, which re-examine Ireland's role in empire through the lens of early modernity, They derive from research that straddles my historical career, now 30 years in the making, from my early work on the McDonald's of Antrim to my current interests on Ireland and India, and collaborative work with Richard Ross and Phil Stern on anglicisation in and through uh, the law. Um, But obviously this is very much a work in progress, as are uh, the um, Fords themselves. So your comments are very much appreciated. I'm going to maybe ask Patrick to sw- switch off the slides for a bit because what I want to do now is really focus on the four big themes. Um, and uh, I'll come back to some slides uh, later in the lecture. My focus really is on Ireland and the first English empire, in other words, from the mid 16th century to the 1770s. But it's critical, where possible and appropriate, to look at other global and European empires for meaningful comparisons and contrasts. something I'll come back to in a minute. As we do this, however, we need to remember that this was an age of European imperial expansionism and that empires and imperial policies, practices and cultures have shaped the history of the world for the last two millennia. With some like the Ottoman Empire lasting for over 600 years and others like the Roman Empire being evoked as the model for centuries. It's nation states that are the blip on the historical horizon. Four interconnected themes underpin the Ford Lectures. First, Ireland was England's first colony and formed an integral part of the English imperial system. The second is, as well as being colonized, the Irish operated as active colonists in the English and other European empires. The third big theme uh, is Ireland served as a laboratory for empire in the Atlantic world and in India. And fourthly, empires shaped the mental and material worlds of people living in early modern uh, Ireland. So let's look at each of these four uh, in a little bit more detail. Let's begin then with as Ireland, uh, 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 basically as England's first colony, uh, Ireland formed an integral part of the English imperial system. This is the focus of two lectures on colonial Ireland. One on Anglicisation looks at the processes whereby attempts were made to make Ireland English. Another on assimilation also examines colonial Ireland, but from a very different perspective. While there's no escaping discussion of race, religion, uh, and rebellion, or of extreme violence, exploitation, and expropriation, there are also stories of assimilation, acceptance, negotiation, survival, and tolerance that need to be told. In this lecture on uh, on assimilation, the traditional configurations of kingdom, colony, and empire are viewed through the prism of gender. And I'm particularly interested in the relationship between marriage and cultural assimilation. Across these lectures, I argue that Ireland was England's first colony, but do want to acknowledge that this is contested. There is debate about whether Ireland was a kingdom or a colony or a hybrid combination of both. And certainly the passage of the Kingship Act in 1541 transformed Ireland's status from a patchwork of feudal lordships into an imperial kingdom. This constitutional revolution redefined relations between the English king and his subjects, especially those of Irish provenance, who were now accorded the same rights as those of English origin. Yet through Poyning's law, which dates or dated uh, from 1494, the Crown mandated that the English Privy Council approve in advance all legislation introduced into the Irish parliament and thereby retained control. The Declaratory Act of 1720 along with English military victories in 1603, in 1652 and in 1691 confirmed Ireland's political subordination. Ireland's status as England's first colony has invited comparison by contemporaries and by historians, most notably D.B. Quinn and Nicholas Canney. Comparison with other English colonies, especially in the Atlantic world and a generation of scholars have offered nuanced case studies illustrating the interconnectedness of the Atlantic world and the challenges and opportunities that a comparative approach affords. Again, this has proved somewhat controversial. Uh, During the Northern Ireland Troubles, uh, the use of the word colony became politicized, as did discussions around Ireland's involvement in the British Empire and the extent to which the Republic of Ireland was post-colonial, and Northern Ireland was colonial. The advent of peace after uh, 1998 and the Good Friday Agreement has allayed many of these anxieties. Yet as the work of Stephen Howe and Audrey Horning highlights, sensitivities remain. In 2013, Horning, an archaeologist, published Ireland in the Virginian Sea, Colonialism in the British Atlantic and rejected altogether any notion of a shared colonial framework. In the preface of her book, she acknowledges how the Troubles influenced her research, how, and I'm quoting, memories of the plantation are routinely invoked by partisans of both traditions and how the unionist community founds the word colony challenging without wishing to stir up a hornet's nest associated with Irish revisionism and revisit the toxic exchanges of the late 1980s and early 1990s. One must ask, as Gerald Farrell does in his recent book, again, I couldn't recommend it more highly, the mere Irish and the colonization of Ulster, whether, and then I'm quoting, the subordination of the evidence to produce history which promotes intersectarian reconciliation must inevitably suffer from the same shortcomings as history designed to promote divisions and animosity. In recent years, Irish history has taken a global turn Uh, Interest is, albeit slowly, shifting from the political master narrative to multiple narratives that embrace the social, economic, environmental and cultural histories of the peoples living on the island, along with those who have left, uh, and of uh, Ireland's relationships with the wider world, including, of course, our nearest neighbour, Britain. Of particular importance has been the call for a circum-Atlantic approach to history that allows us to escape territorial and national boundaries and to adopt transnational and global uh, frameworks. I think equally valuable is the call for a more connected historical approach, rather than a strictly comparative one, which allows for the analysis uh, of uh, of the transfer and operation of imperialism, albeit in very different contexts. This connected framework also acknowledges differences of geography, of scale, culture, and history, which often resulted in local accommodations. And I found this very useful in the context of my work in Ireland and India. I believe that the wider emphasis on transnationalism and global history is empowering Irish scholars to engage with issues of identity, migration, and empire in a more inclusive, interdisciplinary, entangled, connected, and comparative way, with a recognition that it's impossible to separate imperial history uh, from national history. The Food Cult Project, led by Susan Foran, who spoke so uh, uh, eruditely at this seminar a fortnight ago, is an excellent example of this. The second big theme of my Fords is how the Irish, both Catholics and Protestants, served as agents of empire at home and abroad and played active roles in European global expansionism. By 1660, Irish people were to be found in the French Caribbean, the Dutch Amazon, Portuguese Brazil, Spanish Mexico, and the English colonies in the Atlantic and in Asia where they joined Settlements served as soldiers and clergy, forged commercial networks as they traded, calicos, spices, tobacco, sugar, indentured servants, and enslaved peoples. As I reflect on geographies, I stress, as Patrick said at the outset, eastward enterprises as much as westward ones, since they are as interconnected as colonization and commerce were. It is hard to overstate the importance of London, uh, where anglicizing policies were formulated, where lawyers and imperial agents were trained, where joint stock companies were founded, where credit was secured and where peoples from across the early modern world interacted, networked and did business. We know so much about this thanks to the work of a number of scholars, especially David Brown's pioneering book, empire and enterprise. Now we never got to launch this um, uh, uh, because of of the outbreak of Covid, but if you haven't read it I cannot uh, recommend it uh, uh, highly enough. David has made visible an influential oligarchy of London merchant adventurers, venture capitalists, who during the 1640s secured Irish acres at rock bottom, Prices. Uh, this group of roughly 20 men led by Morris Thompson was organized as a corporate body with strong links to Westminster MPs, to local civic bodies across London, to England's social and political elite, and to the English Army and Navy. David has shown how the adventurers used Irish land to fuel their global expansionism. Their Irish estates formed f- part of a portfolio of investments that extended from the fisheries of Newfoundland to the Virginian tobacco t- plantations, from the sugar colonies in the Caribbean, to the trade of spices, coffee and calicoes in India and of enslaved peoples in West Africa. Over the course of the century, and especially from the 1650s. The adventurers created in Ireland a subservient economy producing raw commodities for manufacture in England along with a ready source of labour. British economic imperialism was born. My third big theme is how Ireland served as a laboratory both for imperial rule and for resistance to that rule. How men from Ireland established structures and formulated policies that were first um, implemented in colonial Ireland and later transferred to other parts of the English empire. How concepts and tools of empire were trialed in Ireland and then adopted, albeit having been adapted to suit local local circumstances throughout the early modern Anglophone world. I'm particularly interested in tools of empire that transcended the early modern period into the 19th century. This included modes and structures of governance, policies and practices associated associated with Anglicisation, especially the promotion of English culture, language, religion and education. The law, particularly as it related to the use of land and other natural resources, and finally knowledge uh, collection. Of course, just because Ireland was the first to experience English colonialism does not necessarily prove it was a laboratory. And here I face uh, two challenges. The first is to disentangle what is distinctively Irish versus what was the normal practice in empire. The second is periodization. I would like to draw insights across time and make meaningful uh, connections from the early modern period uh, into the modern. As I attempt to do this, I will focus primarily on Ireland and India and suggest that a comparison of imperial experiences from the mid 17th century to the 19th reveals Uh, several themes that shaped the development of empire in both places. And here I'm very indebted to a wonderful PhD thesis by Alex Chartrand, a Cambridge PhD, which I hope will appear uh, very soon uh, uh, as a monograph. My fourth big theme is how empire shaped the material and mental worlds of people living in early modern Ireland? How did imperial commodities, especially food, spices, drink, clothing, and furnishings, and representations of empire in poems, plays, prose, paintings, travel literature, and maps, form and influence ideas, identities, mindsets, tastes, fashions, and landscapes? How is Ireland's engagement with an experience of empire in the early modern period remembered or not and represented and misrepresented? For example, white supremacists in the United States misleadingly suggest that white indentured or Irish indentured servitude in the 17th century Caribbean equated to white chattel slavery and thereby distort the true meaning and misery of black slavery. Today in Ireland some celebrate and some excoriate connections with the British Empire, others have either conveniently forgotten or are simply ignorant of Ireland's imperial past. However, the decade of commemorations, which is of course 2012 to 22 in Ireland and campaigns around Black Lives Matter, around Brexit, And around roads must fall, have kindled a greater awareness of the importance of revisiting the history of empire, if only better to understand its legacy and how it has shaped the present. I'm very conscious of the current charged political context in which I'm delivering the Fords. I'm also very conscious of the limitations of the evidence and of the dangers of over-relying on English language archives and on the experience of just the English Empire. And I'd like to turn to both of these, um, uh, Patrick, and we'll get some more slides uh, going if that's um, uh, okay with you. Yes, so as, as we all know, and as you can see from this slide, which is a mural at JNU in Delhi, where I spent a sabbatical back in 2015, Uh, It makes it very clear that history is all uh, 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 too often written by the winners. The caption reads, Until deer have their own historian, histories of the hunt will always glorify the hunter. As I write these lectures, I'm making every effort to interrogate available evidence in whatever language and form, written, visual, material, physical and oral, but of course gaps remain. And I'll just use a single example here. It's the work that I'm doing uh, on uh, early modern Bombay. Slide please, Patrick. Uh, It derives very much from the archives of the uh, East India Company, which are enormous. Uh, And as you can see from the slide, um, the uh, material remaining in India is in very, very uh, poor condition. It literally crumbles in your hands. However, there is important material in the archives in London, but also in the archives of other European powers uh, uh, who operated uh, in early modern India, especially uh, the Portuguese, the archives are in Lisbon, and the Dutch in Amsterdam. But what about the non-European archives? When I was living in India, I employed uh, a JNU graduate student uh, who was fluent in Gujarati and Sanskrit, to check out the archives in Bombay and Surat. Unfortunately, uh, nothing of relevance appears to have survived uh, uh, that relates to my study, which makes the European records of course all the more important, along with any uh, physical remains. Next slide please. Here we have uh, the tomb of, the, uh, England, uh, of Gerald Anger Um, uh, who was the founding father of Bombay, whose grandparents settled uh, in Ireland at the turn of the 17th century. He's the man I write about in the past and present article. So he's buried in the English cemetery at Surat, but yet look at the architecture. It's extremely Mughal. Uh, There is no Christian iconography there at all. What does that uh, tell us uh, uh, about Anger? Um, Here, too, are the remains of the original 1670s fortifications that Ranger uh, built in Bombay. You can see um, uh, they're very much... um, the local community has literally taken them over. You'll see the laundry drying at the foot uh, uh, of the uh, fortifications. If you go around the corner, there's a massive rubbish dump. So, but they are there and they're very intact. Um, I think when it comes to India as well, next slide, please, it's very important that we look at the textiles, material culture. Um, what you have in front of me uh, of you is a bedspread uh, that celebrates the Stuarts and the introduction of the pineapple into England. It's from the most exquisite collection of textiles in the Victoria and Albert, uh, which uh, date from the, the 17th century. And it makes the point, of course, that as part of the Mughal Empire, India clothed the world. Um, during this period it was very much an integral part of the global trading system and at the risk of oversimplification European traders exchanged enslaved Africans for Spanish silver and sugar from Barbados they then used this silver to buy Indian textiles which could in turn be traded uh, for more slaves. It was Gerald Ainger who oversaw the Calico craze uh, in the uh, 1670s. So uh, if you want the footprint of Ireland is all over this. But this mention of the Mughal Empire also brings me to the importance of situating the experiences of colonial Ireland in wider geopolitical contexts. The fact that Ireland responded to similar sets of transformative processes as others did, so I mean here, globalization, state formation, confessionalization, the professionalization of warfare, commercialization and so on, facilitates interrogation that is comparative, connected and even entangled. Uh, Recent research and something that I'm exploring further with Richard Ross and Phil Stern suggests that the Spanish Habsburgs ruled their dominions in South America and interacted with their political elite elite there, uh, much as the Stuarts did in Ireland identifying differences is as important as examining uh, similarities. So for example, prior to the 1690s, the fact that many people in Ireland practiced a religion different from that of their king would not have been tolerated elsewhere in contemporary uh, Europe, save the Dutch Republic. Uh, In Ireland, the crown effectively accepted religious pluralism in arrangements that were more akin to those made in the Ottoman Empire or the Safavid Empire or the Mughal Empire. Um, And uh, the Mughal Empire is the one that interests me most, but from the uh, mid-16th century in the reign of Akbar until the uh, mid-17th century in the reign of Aurangzeb, de facto religious toleration characterized Mughal rule in India as the Muslim emperor did what he could to accommodate the majority uh, Hindu faith. Next slide. Please. So, whether in Ireland or in India, there's much to learn from looking at the operation of early modern empires, even if the scales of such empires might be very different, and how they accommodated elites and managed cultural, uh, ethnic, and religious uh, difference. I, 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 this is one of my favourite Mughal miniatures. Uh, you probably recognise the European uh, in the bottom left-hand corner, uh, who is very—he's—he's he, he's situated below um, uh, the, uh, uh, the priests who are giving the book uh, uh, to Jahangar, the emperor, uh, it is of course um, a representation of uh, James VI and uh, uh, first. So let me turn now uh, uh, for the second part of my talk from the Fords, which I've hope given you a, a, a flavor of, uh, maybe a teaser for, to a more focused discussion of Trinity and empire. Um, uh, across the early modern world universities were tools of empire, very important tools of empire, uh, and of course Ireland was no exception, next slide, oh you've got it, Uh, with this in mind Elizabeth I founded Trinity in 1592, and I'm just quoting uh, from the, the founding documents for the education, training and instruction of youths and students, so that they might be better assisted in the study of the liberal arts and in the cultivation of virtue and religion. Um, the, the college was, and this is very uh, a well known uh, quote, uh, to serve for a college of learning whereby knowledge and civility might be increased by the instruction of our people there, where many have usually heretofore used to travel into France, Italy and Spain to get learning in such foreign universities where they may have been infected with potpourri and other ill qualities and so become evil subjects. Elizabeth assigned to the college estates in Munster, confiscated uh, during the 1590s, but given the wartime conditions, these yielded little or no income. So the college has been financially uh, strained uh, from the outset and nothing changes. Uh, Then on the foot of the Ulster plantation, expropriated acres in counties Armagh, Donegal and Fermanagh were also set aside to endow Trinity. A wily Scottish burser, not Veronica Campbell, but James Fullerton also did uh, what he could to grab acres elsewhere and what is clear is precisely what is not clear, though, is precisely how much land the College actually held. And there's a great research project there for somebody and David Brown has been very helpful in just uh, uh, clarifying for me that we don't actually know uh, uh, how much land Trinity uh, held at this point. The drive for civility of course meant Anglicization, a central component of what we might call cultural imperialism. In the wake of the Protestant Reformation of the 1530s, the Tudors renewed efforts to Anglicize the peoples uh, of Ireland and, where possible, to convert them from Catholicism to the English religion Protestantism. The Crown used a variety of um, uh, uh, devices and to civilize. Every time I use civilize, it's got um, quotations around it and Anglicize, Uh, and legislation promoted the English dress, uh, um, language, culture, law, and much more. Given the fundamental importance of education in shaping young minds and securing religious, uh, cultural and political conformity, the state monitored closely where the sons of leading figures were educated. Oxford, especially Christ Church and Magdalen, far from the interference of potentially subversive family members, were seen as the ideal destination for young uh, Catholics, who were usually wards of court, whom the king wanted to, again, civilize. And in, just I just note in passing, wardship was very much a feature of empire in India and was used very aggressively in Ireland until the abolition of the court of Wards in 1660. For those unwilling or unable to attend, Oxford Trinity was the preferred alternative. Uh, though some Catholics attended Trinity, even if they neither matriculated nor graduated, it proved more appealing to uh, zealous Protestants. The liberal arts or the humanities, especially classics and theology dominated the curriculum. The fact that so many early provosts were Cambridge educated reforming Puritans with strong links to Dutch Calvinists made Trinity particularly attractive to those who had colonized the godly settlements of New England. And this explains why John Winthrop, the first governor of Massachusetts sent his son also called John, to Trinity during the 1620s. There was a former VP for global relations uh, 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 I, I never really thought that I could say we've been recruiting in North America since the early 17th century, but I think we can honestly say that. Anyway, Trinity trained uh, clergy populated uh, Ireland's parishes, um, where some did their best to promote Protestantism. Uh, other graduates served overseas. Next slide, please. One of the best known Trinity graduates who was also a fellow of the college is, of course, George Barclay, the Church of Ireland Bishop of Cline. Uh, Barclay is also Ireland's most celebrated philosopher, after whom our library is uh, named. In the 1720s, Barclay resolved to emigrate permanently to Bermuda and establish a college, quote, for the moral regeneration of the American colonies. Uh, In the event, he never made it to Bermuda, instead he settled in Newport, Rhode Island, and you can see his house, it's now a museum, where in 1730 he purchased two slaves, um, Philip aged 14, Edward aged 20, and the following year he baptized, and I'm quoting here, three of his Negroes, Philip, Anthony, and Agnes Berkeley from his base in Rhode Island. Uh, Berkeley uh, influenced the development of universities in the American colonies, especially King's College in New York, which later became Columbia University. And he bequeathed books to the libraries of both at Harvard and Yale, where a college is named after him. Uh, Back in Trinity, obviously our curriculum uh, was modified over time um, and it, Again, over time, uh, 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 became overtly. Uh, um, it was it, it was it was formed overtly to serve the needs of empire. Next slide, please. A chair in Oriental languages was established in 1762 and was later held by Mir Alud Ali, um, and by the mid 19th century. Uh, Trinity offered a wide range of Oriental languages, uh, Tamil, Bengali, Marathi, Gujarati, Hindustani, Sanskrit, Persian and Arabic, together with courses in Indian history and geography. The Trinity Medical School developed an innovative curriculum, training doctors in public health and tropical diseases, and 40% of all medical uh, recruits to the presidencies of Madras, Bombay and Bengal were from from Ireland, most of them from, from Trinity. Next slide, please. Professors like Thomas Oldham uh, trained generations of engineers, and together they oversaw the Ordnance Survey of Ireland in the 1820s and 30s, uh, the mid-19th century Great Trigonometrical Survey of India, the GTS, and the Geological Survey of India, the GSI. It's an interesting coincidence that Thomas Larkham, who worked on the Ordnance Survey of Ireland uh, and liaised closely with colleagues in Madras responsible for the Great Trigonomical Survey of India, also prepared for publication an edition of Sir William Petty's Down Survey. Next slide, please. The Down Survey, which has been digitized and is freely available online, was intended to visualize the claim of the colonial authorities and to offer a convincing version of Ireland as anglicized and integrated into the English imperial system. And it became the prototype for future surveys in the emerging uh, British Empire. Next slide, please. Trinity was especially successful in preparing candidates for the Indian civil service exam. And in uh, the decade following their introduction, uh, Trinity produced 16% of all graduates. The figure uh, for Oxford was 22% and Cambridge 15%. Trinity is also closely associated with prominent figures who resisted empire. Uh, Edmund Burke, next slide please, was a vocal critic of the East India Company and compared Ireland and India on the basis that they were both similarly victimized. On the one hand, Burke thought that empire was morally indefensible, while on the other hand he had interests in sugar and slaves in the Caribbean. The young Irelander John Mitchell led strong opposition to empire as well as falling victim to it when he was transported to Van Diemen's land. On his escape, he fled to America where during the 1850s he continued to oppose empire but also became an apologist for slavery and uh, the Confederates. Burke, Mitchell and Barclay embody the complexities we face as we discuss Trinity's imperial legacy, something that is also reflected in the provenance of our library collections. In the century after its foundation, the college became a centre of learning and had by the mid-18th century acquired a formidable library. In 1799, Abu Talib Ish Fahini, a relative of the Nawab of Bengal, traveled to Dublin to meet Lord Cornwallis, whom um, Abu Talib had known in India, and he visited Trinity's library. Next slide. According to his own account there, and I'm quoting, he saw the elegant manuscripts and some other Persian books in the language collection of the library. Our knowledge today, next slide please, Uh, of these Persian books and our Arabic manuscripts was transformed last year by having a Marie Curie co-fund fellow Torsten Wallina as a visiting uh, researcher in the hub and I really would encourage you to check out his website where he features the collecting of many um, uh, uh, Trinity graduates uh, and others associated with the college including Robert Huntington. Next slide please. Um, Robert Huntington had served as a chaplain in the British Levant Company and traveled to the Ottoman Empire, visiting Egypt, Palestine, Cyprus, Syria, and Istanbul. He acquired more than 700 books and hundreds of manuscripts, many of which he donated or sold to the Bodleian. In 1681, the year before he became provost, Huntington donated 10 manuscripts to Trinity and this is simply an image uh, from one of them and I'm really grateful to Jane Maxwell and colleagues in the library who have been very helpful in supplying a number of these uh, images. Abu Talib also met the antiquarian J, uh, Charles Valency, who helped to secure for the college important materials collected by William Oosley, another Trinity graduate who served in the English army in India and became one of the most important collectors of Persian manuscripts. Next slide please. Um, uh, you have there just a list of what uh, Oosley sold uh, to the college uh, in 1808. Now the provenance of usley manuscripts are mostly clear, uh, which is not the case uh, for other items which were clearly plundered works uh, that found their way into the library. So for example in 1806 the directors of the East India Company presented a very fine and magnificently illustrated copy of the 10th century epic Uh, poem, Shanama, from the library of Tipu Sahib. This was, of course, Tipu Sultan, the ruler of Mysore in southern India, who spent much of his life fighting the imperial forces of the East India Company. He died in 1799, following an attack on his fort, led by Richard Wellesley, later the Duke of Wellington and Governor General of India, an Irishman who found his Irishness a liability less said about him the better maybe, let's move on. Uh, Exquisite works were also taken uh, from the library of the last Mughal emperor. Uh, uh, The library was of course uh, housed in the Red Fort, Uh, it was ransacked after an attack in 1857 left by John Nicholson, led by John Nicholson an imperial psychopath uh, born in Dublin, mercifully not a Trinity graduate, but whose statue now stands in Lisburn city centre. One particularly important volume from uh, the library in the Red Fort is an early 17th century medical textbook by Hakim Hamid, and you can see uh, uh, the illustration. It once uh, formed part of the library of the Emperor Shah Jahan, who you see there, the man who oversaw the construction of the Taj Mahal. This exceptionally rare volume allows scholars to track the history of medicine and science in South Asia and to better understand how practitioners of Galenic, Islamic, Ayurvedic, and even Chinese medicine interacted and influenced each other. It's critical that we acknowledge the provenance of items such as these however uncomfortable that, they, that might make us feel. Uh, the question is what do we do with them in an age of repatriation, reparation and restitution? I've no simple answer here and it's a discussion that we as a community uh, clearly need to have. However, I feel that technology can offer some solutions both about access and how we collaborate in a transnational and, transdis- and interdisciplinary way. For example, we're actively working on securing funding for the digitization and transcription of Hakim Hamid's medical textbook, along with other items held by Trinity taken from the Red Fort. This digital surrogate together with an exhibition and support for a range of scholarly activities will not only make these important works accessible, encourage scholarly debate, but might even allow for the eventual virtual reconstruction of the library of the last Mughal emperor whose works uh, were divided um, uh, between Trinity, between Cambridge and the Royal Library in Windsor. Next slide, please. This is the approach that we've taken uh, with the Fagel collection, which was purchased in 1802. And it's now one of the great treasures of our library and one that captures the extent of European expansionism and imperialism like few others do. It was assembled over a period of a century and a half by several generations of the Fagel family, many of whom held high office in the province of Holland. The other half of the Fagel material, the archives and the manuscripts is held by the National Library of the Netherlands. A recent generous gift by the Dutch government will allow for the cataloguing and digitization of several of, we hope, most of the Vagel uh, uh, collection along with a range of scholarly activities. Now it's hard to overstate the potential here for international collabor- collaboration, for research across disciplines and for a deeper understanding of the operation of early modern empires. And I'm so excited to see Fagel begin to open up. Next slide, please. Uh, Especially the cartographic uh, collection because maps were of course tools of empire and the Fagel collection is one of the finest in the world and unsurpassable in terms of uh, quality and standard of preservation. It's the only extant contemporary collection of this size that was assembled uh, as the material was published as opposed to retrospectively. And many items uh, are are either private printings and thus very rare. And again, I just uh, salute the work that David Brown, Mihalo Shokru, and the late uh, Shay Lawless and others uh, did uh, with uh, uh, the cartographic collection. The opportunity there is, is tremendous. Now, I focused very much here on the library collections, but Trinity's zoological, botanical, and anatomical collections are, as Kieran O'Neill recently reminded us, um, uh, very important. Uh, they were amassed, and I'm quoting Kieran, by roving Victorian academics whose collecting habits at the margins of empire and morality have bequeathed to future generations of Trinity students a large repository of animal and human remains. In a recent session uh, uh, held by the Trinity Long Room Hub uh, on how we might engage with our colonial past, Kieran showed us this slide. Next slide, please. It's a very chilling image from the Charles Brown photographic collection in Trinity um, showing the collection of data on brains on Inishbofin Island in 1892. Next slide, please. It's important to remember that this othering of the Irish has a very long history, uh, dating back to Géraldus Cambrensis in the 11th century and Edmund Spencer and his ilk in the 16th and 17th. And here we have uh, Speed's representation of the mere Irish. This ethnocentricity, this dehumanizing, was one of the tools of empire that was fine-tuned in Ireland and then exported around the Anglophone empire. Of course, Trinity was not the only Irish institution invested in empire. The other Queens colleges at Cork, Galway and Belfast along with Maynooth and University College Dublin produced generations of graduates who made their careers in Imperial service. Fenula O'Kane's wonderful work on Irishness and the built environment in the Caribbean highlights the particular connections through the Diggs Latouche family between Belfield in Dublin and Belfield in Jamaica. Bodies like the Royal Irish Academy and the National Museum, which brought together collections from Trinity and the Dublin, Royal Dublin Society, also hold materials associated with or secured on the back of empire. In short, empire casts its shadow all over the island, especially Dublin, once the second city of the British Empire. Aside from acknowledging this, how best can we engage with our imperial legacies? Next slide. Though I remain to be convinced that iconoclasm is the most effective way of dealing with a complex and contested past, we've already pulled down some of our statues uh, certainly not every statue belongs in place forever. We might look again at those remain, at those that remain, or those of others who've been, uh, who that have strong associations with enslaved peoples, like the nationalist hero John Mitchell. Should we remove and obliterate the past, even if we know that these statues represent something abhorrent? Uh, The reality remains that the sins of the past have forged or have helped to forge the present and so it's important to record, to provide context and to educate, even if we find the past, uh, uh, as I say, abhorrent. Whether uh, whether Trinity should rename the Barclay Library, as all souls will rename the Codrington Library, is another matter for reflection and discussion, as is the extent to which we should decolonize our curriculum. These are all issues that we are grappling with. uh, And some of this is in the context of an initiative that colleagues in the history department and around Trinity have launched provisionally called Slavery, Imperialism and Racism. Our goal is to engage the college community in a critical conversation about Trinity's colonial legacies. And over the course of the next 18 months, a postdoctoral research fellow will be invited to undertake a full audit of endowments, prizes, uh, buildings, named chairs and uh, collections. No doubt the researcher will find many skeletons in the college closet and recover stories of staff and student activism, uh, whether as abolitionists or later uh, those involved in anti-colonial uh, movements. And of course, Kader Asmal um, and his work in the anti-apartheid uh, movement immediately uh, springs to mind. Uh, parts of the South African constitution were written around his dining uh, uh, or his kitchen table uh, in, in Rathgar. Um, uh, but I'm sure there'll be many other stories. Um, I'm not entirely sure where this journey uh, will take us, uh, but it's clear there, we're at the b- beginning of something Something very important. Um, I very much hope we can learn from how others have engaged in their imperial pasts without repeating their mistakes and we can work collaboratively across the island to better understand who we are um, and where we have come from and where we might go in this post-Brexit world. So thank you very much uh, uh, for your attention.
2: Thank you very much Jane, that was absolutely wonderful and extremely stimulating um, presentation and I think we've learned an awful lot um, about, about so I about Ireland, about empire, about connections, about interconnectivity, about entanglements, but also I think that in the second half of the paper I think just thinking about the ways forward and I'm struck by the sort of way you've emphasized the library and I think others have been emphasizing other aspects of college in this regard and I suspect there are multiple aspects, and I think it's very important just to flag up that project. Um, myself and Kieran O'Neill are, are leading that at the moment, and we're hoping to recruit somebody in the new year to investigate college colleges' colonial legacies, is what we're calling it. We haven't yet got a, a good title, and I think that explains the complexity of the project. And I think it will differ substantially from work done elsewhere because Trinity's exposure to slavery is perhaps less. Um, peer institutions in Britain, but its exposure to colonialism, whether it is those unnumbered acres of Irish land or its connections to the engineering department, the School of Divinity, perhaps, um, anatomy, medicine, geography, and um, history itself. I think there are many connections that I think we can probably draw on and expound upon. I think it's be very interesting to see what turns up. So we're now going to turn to questions from our. Um, Extraordinary audience we've had. I think 110 people tuning in at a peak this afternoon. We're still over 100. It's absolutely wonderful. And questions are beginning to flow in. If you have any questions, please do post them in the Q and A box, and I'll put them to, and I'll, I'll put them to Jane. I'll put, I'll, I'll put them straight away to Jane. Um, so anybody who has questions, do please start to put them into the Q and A box there, and we can address them. Um, <coughs> so I shall leave that open for questions. So maybe just before handing over, just
0: have,
2: um, we have a que- I have a question here coming in from Stephen Carroll, who says thank you for an excellent paper. I think we can agree on that. And he's a double question. Do we have any idea of how much Trinity's South Asian collection is used? Presumably not extensively. Secondly, did people you meet in India comment on rep- repatriation of material in Ireland and Britain? And I think that they're very much linked.
1: Thank you very much, Stephen. It's lovely to have your question. I wish we were all together, but it's nice to be connected virtually. Um, So both very good questions. So in terms of the use of the South Asian collections, obviously the ones in English have been used. And I see Andrew McKillop is on the line. So uh, Andrew McKillop, or Mackie as we know him, um, spent a term as a fellow in the hub. And um, he he was really focusing in on the English language uh, uh, records of the uh, East India Company. And there was one that he found that I I subsequently looked at, which was one of these amazing sort of, I don't know how to pronounce it, uh, a primer uh, in uh, English, in Hindi, uh, I think, and and the third language was Sanskrit, uh, uh, aimed at, Young men who were going out in the early 18th century uh, to work in India, and it was a very, very practical guide. Um, you know about, you know, their stomachs uh, uh, and 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 you know issues around health. Um, but there was one that sticks in my mind. You know, this crocodile, this river is not void of crocodiles. I mean, some of these are just so wonderfully practical. Um, but 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 Andrew McKillop might want to come in here and talk about the collection because I say I know he's he's used the English language ones. I think the challenge for us. are the the material that is in Sanskrit, um, that is in um, obviously Arabic, uh, Persian, the languages that we simply don't have um, the expertise uh, to read. So I was very lucky to have spent an afternoon in special collections with um, an Indian historian called Sanjeev Jain and he's actually the one who's collaborating with us to um, transcribe, digitize, and transcribe the medical treaties, the Hakim treaties that I referred to. And he was the one who was able to say, Jane, do you realize how unique that is or how special that is? that item has come from Tipu Sultan's library, that item has come that was part of the library of the last Mughal Emperor in the Red Fort. So I think it's extremely important that we can make this material to scholars who are able to um, uh, actually engage with it, to read it, to help us understand the significance of it. In terms of repatriation, um, um, that's the other side, as as Patrick said, of the question. I've spent a lot of time in India um, over over the years now. Um, I think there's a recognition that actually, if some of this material had stayed in India, it probably would not have survived. And I don't know if you saw the condition of the records of the East India Company that I showed you in the slide, which are literally, crumbling so obviously the Indian archives and libraries do not have the same facilities that we have and aren't actually and not all of them but the vast majority of them aren't able to conserve and uh, preserve uh, materials especially the rarer uh, materials and it's not just that the climactic conditions aren't great. And just to give you an example, when I was working in the Elfordston um, uh, archives in uh, Mumbai, the material is very fragile and because it's it, everything is open. So you have the pigeons flying around and pooping on everything. You have these great big fans that are twirling and that are picking up papers and swirling them around. Um, then uh, the chaiwala comes and serves tea. And I was like, oh my God, I can't drink my tea beside these manuscripts, but it's not stopping anybody else. But probably the best was in the archives in Delhi is when a longur, which are these big monkeys, actually came into the archives. And nobody seemed in the slightest bit worried about this, except for me and another Japanese um, scholar who was there like, is that really a monkey? Anyway, I I mean, so so I think there's an issue with physical conditions. Um, However, I do think it's very important that we make this material available um, in in, in digital uh, form um, so scholars can have access to it. And it's not just the material that is in Trinity. There are, I mean, there's a a fabulous amount of material in somewhere like Prony, in the Public Record Office of of Northern Ireland that relates uh, to India, that would be of huge interest to historians uh, uh, in India. And then stuff in private collections. Um, I had the privilege of spending time with the the late um, Lindy Dufferin, uh, um, the, the Marchioness of Dufferin and Ava, who, Lord Dufferin had been the viceroy of India in the 1890s and who had the most extraordinary private collection. Now, over a million records are in Prony but there's also material um, in, in Clandiboy and uh, uh, much of it uh, unique or very rare and, and you know I, I'm hoping that even though Lindy has passed away that that material will be digitized but I think it's very important that we as a community are working in collaboration with our colleagues, uh, most of my collaborators are either in Bangalore or in a JNU in Delhi, that we work in partnership uh, with them to make this as accessible and as available as possible. I think the other thing just simply to note are the collections of the Mughal miniatures that are in the Chester Beatty Library are simply world-class. The image I showed you was from the Sackler in, uh, with James the sixth and first in it, was from the Sackler uh, in Washington, but, but the Chester Beatty material is equally, just absolutely, I mean, of, of, of huge, a, a significance. So I hope that answers your question, Stephen.
2: Just to pick up on that question, we have a question here from Donald Hassett and um, UCC, who is wondering, and you've answered this to some degree, but I wonder if you're saying anything more, what you think about the ideas of restitution followed by co-curation co- and guardianship as a means of returning ownership, and um, but also preserving and digitizing material. And I suppose so i just echo that in terms of what you're saying about the archival conditions. Presumably there's a reparations element that could be involved in training archival staff and all the rest and you know there are other ways of doing reparations that that might be one.
1: I don't have any easy answer here because I think it's just a conversation and I'm also very conscious of just the sheer um, the custodianship that say our own library colleagues have shown. And it's a very complex story. And you know, I don't know if Jane Maxwell or somebody from the library is, is in the seminar and wants to comment on this, but um, it is a very, 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 very tricky one. And um, I think the first thing we need to do is establish what we've got and get that very, detailed catalogues, some of the, as you well know, the Trinity catalogues um, uh, uh, definitely need investment and improvement, and then digitization. Let's begin that, begin with that. But the scale of our collections are huge. So, I mean, it's, it's it will require, I mean, a significant investment in terms of working with colleagues. Um, obviously India is my primary, um, uh, I think the the Nehru Memorial Library at one point was very keen to send um, uh, conservators and librarians to fellowships in the hub and then uh, Narendra Modi took over and all of a sudden you know, that was no longer on the cards. Uh, so, so countries like India are very vulnerable to political agendas that then kibosh attempts to do this sort of collaborative work as well. So, so it's not straightforward, it's not easy.
2: It's moving slightly further on, a question here from Breed McGrath who's wondering, um, without in any way wishing to diminish the role of many Irish people, and there were Irish merchants in the Amazon after all in the 1630s, but it's striking that all the names you mention are from the New English who settled in Ireland from the 1610s and post Cromwellian. So a colonial elite was moved into colonizing other places. There was no mention of those of ethnic Irish origin, origin that we know the Galway merchants were active in the Caribbean, for instance, in the 17th century. Do you want to comment on that?
1: I do. And the answer is Breed, (laughs) lecture four is where I look at them in detail. Um, Obviously, today I was just giving a very, very high overview, but especially those Galway merchants. Um, But we know uh, from work that's been done on the Caribbean, uh, especially Montserrat, but not just Montserrat. Uh, We find, if you want, Gaelic names in the Spanish uh, Atlantic Empire, especially. In places like Cuba um, and I, I visited um, uh, Cuba a few years ago um, uh, as part of a visit with Michael D Higgins and I stayed in the Casa O'Reilly in the Calle O'Farrell. Um, so you know I mean Gaelic Ireland is all over the Caribbean what we're seeing, and it's fascinating. And if you want, uh, there's a very good article in the Cambridge History of Ireland, Volume 2, by William O'Reilly, where he actually talks about this as well as Akinson's book on Montserrat. Um, and what's very interesting to note is the Gaelic Irish who then settle very quickly um, become slave masters themselves. Um, and it's almost as if the abusers then become, you know, the victims of abuse become very effective uh, abusers themselves. Then they very very quickly become part of the political establishment. They will often intermarry with English families, a lesser extent, not so much with Scottish families. Um, And uh, then they're sending uh, money back to Ireland um, and those uh, families uh, um, uh, obviously are are improving their lot uh, 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 throughout the uh, 18th and into the early 19th century. So, So as I say, lecture four is the one where I really will talk about that in detail.
2: Just picking up on the reference to William O'Reilly there, a question from Graham Murdoch, suggests that William O'Reilly's research suggests that Habsburg Latin America proved to be something of a laboratory for governing practices imported for later use in the northern Balkans. Would there be any English parallels of the influence of extra-European practices later adapted for Ireland?
1: Oh, that's a really good question. Um, a really good question, Graham. Um, I'm not seeing that in the context of the early modern period. I think where we start to see it is um, uh, uh, it, it, for the later period. Um, I'm constantly looking f- for it, as you can imagine. Uh, what I'm seeing, though, is if you want the lateral circulation of, 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 of practices and policies around the Anglophone um, uh, empire Um, but what Alex Chartrand is the person I mentioned her thesis very briefly Um, and I think uh, it's really to do with land practices in the 19th century um, but also attitudes towards uh, Tories and Rapparees Um, in India it's, it's legislation that's developed um, I, I, they call them thuggies. So, so what happens is it, it, the original legislation is taken from Ireland to India, it's modified in India and then brought back to Ireland again. So, you know, you do see that circulation um, uh, uh, between Ireland and India, but then as I say, you see circulation um, uh, around. Uh, so for example, the work of, I don't know, Jennifer Wells is joining us, but she's done some very important work uh, looking at, at legal material uh, and how it goes from Cromwellian Ireland to Barbados. Then it's next thing we find the same sort of legislation being repurposed in St Helena. Next thing it, it's in Bombay. So, you know, people are lazy uh, and if something is working somewhere they simply or seem to be copying it, adapting it. Um, so, so you do see that circulation. So the work, but just, just to say, I'm, I'm also working on this with um, Richard Ross and Phil Stern um, and particularly vis a vis Latin America. So, uh, I mean, I'm just beginning to, to get into that. But I think there's, and, and obviously, Richard Riley, uh, William Riley, sorry, his work is, is very interesting and important here, too.
2: Excellent. Now, um, just going back again um, to Reid's question, a question here from the Olo i and just following up. And he's just wondering if there's a danger of conflating the study of Ireland and empire in the early modern period with the study of the Irish and empire. Ireland's centrality in the imperial project, the 17th and 18th century is clearly attested, but apart from certain individuals, the role of the Irish as distinct from the English of Ireland is a far more challenging subject prior to the Union in the 19th century.
1: I don't know if you want to no, it is. It's really difficult, Michal. Um, all I would say is the English of Ireland are treated and are called Irish. So Gerald Ainger. Would never have seen him called himself. He was third generation Irish. He himself wanted to be known as English. But his colleagues in the East India Company certainly didn't call him that. Um, and he held his Irishness very dear. Um, But uh, so, so, you know, these issues of identity get very uh, uh, are very complicated and I think need to be looked at and and dealt with in in different ways. Um, um, Mark Cable has a lovely uh, study. uh, It's a a pamphlet sort of that looks at um, the Hodges in in India and again how um, uh, in the later 17th century, basically, Um, they are treated by their compatriots um, in, I think it's in Madras, um, uh, as effectively, I I know, as as being Irish. So, I mean, it's operating at many, many levels here, and I don't want to oversimplify things, and I think, you know, I'm constantly trying to uh, unpack it and tease it uh, out. Uh, But what would be interesting to me is just going back to those and this again, William O'Reilly's article in the uh, Cambridge History of Ireland is how quickly those of Gaelic-Irish provenance who end up in the Caribbean want to shed their Irishness uh, uh, as well. So, and, and, And William makes the point, I think, very effectively that you cannot look at identity in the pre-famine period in the same way that we look at it in the post-famine period. Um, it's, it's very, very different and it's very much shaped by place um, and it, there is no pattern um, uh, so, so, and it makes it very tricky. Jenny Shaw has also done interesting work on, on this in the Caribbean.
2: Yeah, I think Jonathan Wright's work on, the, on yes. the Black family of Belfast where they exploit their Irishness to um, operation in the Spanish Empire is intriguing where they, when they shouldn't be as Protestants. But yes, yeah, so I think there are, there, people use this in all sorts of ways. And the black family reminds me of Jim Jim Livesey who I have a question here from, um, who's wondering, can we extend Ireland and empire work to see back formation into core elements of the British experience? And he has in mind examples, such as the way in which Hobbes picked up in his concept of sovereignty from Spencer, which has huge consequences for the construction of the British state.
1: Um, you know, Jim, uh, oh, that's a really good question. I'm not sure I've got a very good answer for it. And and um, <laughs> certainly Spencer has a very, 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 very long shelf life. Um, and um, you see him being revived, obviously, um, in the 19th century uh, at the height of, if you want, the British Empire. Um, so about that, uh, you know, absolutely. But further than that, I'm not sure I, I, I would defer to. I, I'll defer to you, I just, I just can't answer that in any detail. And by the way, welcome to Galway, I'm delighted that you're joining us. I don't know if, I hope that's public knowledge.
2: I think it is. But, um, <laughs> I hope it um, is. And then we have a question here, another, I suppose, big question from Andrew McKillop. Um, Which models of global empire and even of early modern globalization, do you believe the historic experience of Ireland and Irish diaspora evidence support or challenge He's thinking here of the world systems theory, Pomeranzas, great divergence, et cetera, et cetera.
1: Oh, Mackie, do you know something? Again, these are killer questions. And and <laughs> I um, I'm not sure that I've thought about it in quite that way. I'm waiting for your book to come out. I think that would be. I don't know when it's coming out because you've obviously really thought about this. Um, so f- for me, when I, I, I probably I'm, I just I'm not engaging with the, with them. I'm just because what I'm trying to do is look at it. it, it, it so so what I've we've been talking about is um, the the Irish outside of Ireland. Um, And I'm extremely interested in looking at the whole Imperial experience in Ireland as well. And that's where it just doesn't always fit neatly into these wider models. So the truth is I haven't really looked at it. I haven't really thought about it. Now that doesn't mean I shouldn't. um, And maybe I certainly should before the Fords. So, you know, we can continue that conversation. And I I think when it comes to empire, it's one of these conversations that it's it's uh, it, it's so sensitive in an irish context or it was until relatively recently that actually we haven't developed as sophisticated a conversation around it as say for example even work on Scotland and Empire Um, and certainly your own work here is exemplary. Um, So so, so, you know I think this is all part of this conversation as far as I'm concerned.
2: Yeah and I think that I think that duality of Ireland's experience is something that I think just connecting into the Trinity aspect of your talk is something that we're very conscious of in terms of the work we want to do here that Trinity as a instrument of colonial power, as a colleague has suggested, in Ireland, as well as outside Ireland. And I think it makes it very different from the experience of other universities elsewhere that are doing, are self-examining their pasts, be it Glasgow, be it R- Bristol, Cambridge, et cetera. Um, and I, I, I think that's hugely important, we're thinking about um, well, Mackie, however, does rejoin here and suggests that Ireland's debate is as sophisticated, more so in respects, so...
1: Oh, well, actually, we need to get let, Mackie, there. let Mackie speak to that. I don't know if, he, if you can elevate him and, I, can, uh, can, I should try. Um, but also, I'd love him to comment on Stephen Carroll's point about the archives as well.
2: I'm bringing him in, so we'll see if he, he's willing.
0: <laughs>
2: Mackie, over to you.
1: Oh, well,
0: that's... I didn't believe I would be so elevated. <laughs> Thank you very much, and that was a great paper, so wide ranging. Thank you so much. Um, I don't have any particularly to add. I mean, I, 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 I'm not a great believer, certainly, that um, the debates amongst other parts of, of um, soon to be Brexit Britain, are any more developed um than um the way the academies developed in Ireland. I think in some respects, um, we're further behind. I think what's very noticeable, however, is that queer. Where I think um, the debate um, will have to be thought about seriously um, in terms of how Ireland can, can contribute is in periodisation, I think. Um, so much of the debate in Britain really is, once you move into the global period, is really post 1990s I think what Ireland's doing in terms of contributing, not just to my understanding of the, the Empire, English or British, um, but really important models like Pomeranz's Great Divergence is you're putting the periodization further back. And I think that's that's where there's a lot of significant um, input for the Irish evidence, a much wider level, even beyond Ireland. In terms of the archives, um, uh, again, um, Trinity, in terms of its humanity strategy, is arguably way ahead of a lot of the rest of us. So I would would say um, say we have nothing to learn... uh, 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 you have nothing to learn from our good selves over here, uh, be it Brexit or uh, the Empire.
1: And Mikey, just in terms of the archives, the work that you did when you were in Trinity, were you looking primarily at Scots or you were looking at the Irish in the East India Company as well?
0: That was all, all Irish.
1: Yeah.
0: That, they, they, were all, they were all mostly military officers and stuff like that. The Irish Yeah. Form, Co- yeah. So these yeah. are all, these are all Irish officers returning material, material you've looked at, and they're really doing that, Jane, from the 1770s and 1780s.
1: Yeah. Thank you.
2: Okay, just, uh, just, just before we finish up, I suppose, just picking back up and see when your final slides, but decommemoration, we have a question here about the, um, the facts of history are awkward, but unbridled revisionism cannot compensate for or alter those facts. Knocking down statues, changing names is cultural and historical vandalism. Surely we're going to learn and acknowledge those facts without having to resort to such extreme retrospective models. I, I assume that you are being provocative with your, with your statue raising, but I think there are probably valid questions about removal and thinking about monuments. And if you have any further thoughts on the on that aspect of it, should yeah. we be removing monuments a la Codrington?
1: Do you know something, Um, personally, I think it's more important to contextualize. I think it's really important to educate. Um, I think some of these statues are offensive? Um, Does that mean that we should knock them down? I, you know, I think it's really important that we acknowledge, in other words, you bow to the past without being bound by it. Um, uh, And I, 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 the one that I I find really difficult is is the one of Nicholson um, that's in Lisburn city centre, because, you know, Nicholson was an absolute, as I say, an imperial psychopath. And that Statue was taken um, from um, Delhi De- Gate where he died uh, uh, from India and taken back. You know, does that belong there? I think you know, it's it's it's. It's, it's it's a very, very belligerent one and, it, you know, it might be more appropriate for some of these statues to be in a museum or, you know, somewhere. I'm not saying we want to destroy them. I think that's not appropriate at all. The other thing that's, I think, happened to a number of Columbus's statues in Latin America just... Uh, the, with that artists have repurposed them. And I think that's a very interesting concept uh, as well. Um, But we're historians. So, you know, these statues are telling us something about a moment in time. And I, I, you know, I I certainly don't think anything should be destroyed, but whether it should still be uh, so publicly um, exhibited, obviously, without any context, I, I, I think, you know, it's something we certainly should be discussing.
2: Absolutely. I think the, the yeah, I think that, that Lisburn one was striking. Um, I think that really is sort of remarkable. Um, There is the suggestion here that we could have a Soviet, like a Soviet era statues park on the outskirts of the city. I know at one stage that was proposed for Dublin's colonial statues, they'd all end up in Merrion Square. It was one of the many wacky proposals for Merrion Square in the early years of independence, but we never got there, perhaps, thankfully. Um, But yeah, no, I, I think, no, absolutely. Think that Lisburn one does need questions, but, um. I think we could probably leave it there. This has been absolutely wonderful and a great insight into the forthcoming fourth lectures. We've had questions, will they be streamed? Yes, they will be. They're in hybrid fashion as Jane mentioned earlier. And I think we'd all look forward to hearing more during that time, but also I think to all the ongoing work that is ongoing, I think across all the Irish universities at the moment, in interrogating some of these, quest- some of these questions, of the legacies of empire in Ireland, in our own institutions and I think wider and wider afield. So I think this really is a burgeoning field. Um, So I just want to thank Jane.
1: Oh, before, Patrick, yep. before you do, can I just say, I, I don't know if Hussein Omar is on the call, but I had a lovely conversation with him the other day about, obviously Trinity is doing this, but that we could work actually with the other universities, with the cultural institutions to do this in a collective way, because I actually think, it, you know, it's definitely something that, you know, Trinity shouldn't be doing on its own. I think it's, the moment has come for us all. Donal is there in in UCC, obviously, Fanula. And Hussein Omar at UCD, and, and maybe it is an opportunity to actually for us all to work together um, uh, to, to, to address some of these issues. So I just wanted to say that as a, a final thing.
2: Yeah, no, I think I think you know, I would just echo that as well. I think there's so much work going on. I think Queens as well, I and mean, just applies opportunities mm. for cross-border work there as well. And I think I think we should be trying to. Do this collaboratively and i think you know the best some of the best work that has been done recently has been collaborative let's keep that and i think so i just want to again just thank everybody for their um insightful contributions for the questions and for jane for an absolutely wonderful paper and to thank everybody who's attended throughout the term We've, we've this has been a new experience for us but i think it has worked very well and we just like to thank you all for your attention and for your um input throughout this term thank you goodbye <music>
1: The Hub is a community
0: Manuscript, book and print
1: cultures Stamping provenance Languages towards the history of the time year library As well as being heard The Hub is a space Contemplating
0: Ireland through the communities created by Coral changes. changes The Hub is about impact The Hub is for everyone The, the rise,
1: rise. The 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 of feminist Here's to the next 10 years.